It's 6 p.m., and you're tuned to your community radio station, KVMR-FM, Nevada City, KCPC, Camino. Today is Tuesday, May 9th, and this is the KVMR Evening News. I'm Julia Jem. Joyce Miller returns Thursday. Menifee, a city in Riverside County, has chosen to create its police department from scratch. It launched in the summer of 2020 in the wake of George Floyd's murder. The California Report covers how the department has changed over the course of the last three years. Then, after a look at local news and weather, KVMR Youth News Corps' Jason Lehman explores the concept of the California drought with Sierra Fund Program Director Carrie Monahan. That's all before a commentary from Nevada County resident Jeff Kane. This is the California Report. I'm Madi Bolaños in San Francisco. California's legislature has approved $150 million to help cash-strapped hospitals across the state. The money would fund a hospital loan program, says CalMatters health reporter Ana Ibarra. The new loan program comes after the closure of Madera Community Hospital in the San Joaquin Valley, and after at least seven other facilities statewide have publicly discussed their financial struggles. The loans will be available through an application process. To qualify, hospitals will have to prove that they need the money and that they have a clear plan for recovery. Hospitals in trouble tend to serve low-income communities, and several of them are located in rural areas, meaning access to care is already limited. Legislators recognize this program may be just a short-term fix. Hospitals say they will need more support in the upcoming budget to truly make a dent in their financial strains. That was CalMatters reporter Ana Ibarra. Governor Gavin Newsom will need to sign the bill into law to enact the new loan program. While the Madera Community Hospital remains closed, there's growing concern about a looming deadline in a few weeks. The hospital's license is set to expire on May 26. Dr. Mohammed Ashraf, a cardiologist who's worked at the medical facility, says any possible new investors would need assurance that the hospital can be up and running quickly. They may, you know, want to buy it as a hotel. They may want to buy as something else, but not as a hospital. Who's going to sit with them in with this hospital for two more years, trying to recruit doctors, trying to recruit nurses, trying to recruit um, equipment, get equipment? Who's going to do that? Ashraf says they do have options. The state might be able to extend the deadline for license renewal, or the $100,000 license fee could be paid through the hospital's bankruptcy proceedings. We've reached out to the State Department of Public Health for comment on a possible extension and have not heard back from the agency. Menifee in Riverside County is one of the fastest growing cities in the country. As it's grown, the city made the decision to create its own police department from scratch. It launched in the summer of 2020, just as policing was under intense scrutiny in the wake of George Floyd's murder. Now, nearly three years later, KVCR's Madison Ament reports on the successes and struggles of the new police department. As Officer Tom Perez patrols Menifee, he drives past gated communities with large single-family homes. They've sprung up recently on what was ranch land. Everything in Menifee is so different. Perez has been with the Menifee Police Department since it launched nearly three years ago. This morning, there isn't much crime, but Perez does get a lot of calls. He checks on a house where an alarm went off, then he helps a person sleeping in a church parking lot. Before Perez joined this team, before this team was built, 
the community contracted out its law enforcement to the Riverside County Sheriff's Department. Menifee itself only incorporated in 2008. It was during the Great Recession. And Bill Zimmerman, the city's mayor, says the city wasn't in financial shape to create its own police department. But some years later, things were different. The population was growing. City revenue was up. It was time to look at some other opportunities where we could have local control and be able to control the budget. Part of having local control meant having a larger local police presence. Armando Villa is the city manager. We wanted to be able to dictate to ourselves what the level of service is going to be. You know, and the residents are telling us we want to be the safest city in California. Menifee ultimately determined that having their own officers, instead of paying the Riverside sheriffs, made financial sense. And in late 2018, the city council voted unanimously to launch its own police force. You know, it's one thing to know the job, it's another thing to start a police department. That's Pat Walsh, the city's first police chief. He'd recently been chief in Lompoc. In Menifee, he had one year to build the new department from scratch. And that meant hiring officers. A lot of them. And, and, you know, and the problem was right in the middle of all this COVID hit. That meant Walsh couldn't recruit in person, so he had to get creative. The city paid for billboards, and they hired a public relations firm to produce recruiting videos called Where's the Chief? Where's the Chief? Is he on vacation? Well, sort of. According to Walsh, those videos enticed people to apply. But... Just weeks before the department opened, officers in Minneapolis killed George Floyd. And that sparked nationwide protest against police brutality. For Walsh, among other things, he says it underscored the importance of hiring good people. He felt proud of his new officers. And besides, he said all of them were new and on probation. So if someone behaved badly... And it didn't get corrected, boom, you're gone. Walsh, who retired nearly a year ago says in his time with the department, he did come across a few bad apples. There were some people that didn't survive me and are no longer there. When Menifee originally considered its own police force, the conversation was about saving money. Now, with a growing city that's also bringing in more revenue, the city can afford to expand the department. Menifee Mayor Bill Zimmerman says the investment is worth it. People have confidence in Menifee Police, um, knowing that if they pick up the phone, someone's going to come and that they're going to be there to give them the best service that they can. Seeing more police on duty is something I noticed driving around town. It's also something that was apparent to the dozen or so residents I spoke with on the streets in Menifee. One of them was Mark Duell, who's lived here for five years. I noticed their presence. I leave for work very early in the morning and I notice if there's any activity, there's multiple units on the scene, and it does make me feel safer. Safer, he says, knowing that the city has its own force that's accountable to them. For The California Report, I'm Madison Ament in Menifee. Support for The California Report comes from the California Healthcare Foundation. Listening to Black Californians, a new study on how the healthcare system undermines the pursuit of good health on the web at chcf.org lbca. The Wesley Foundation, investing in California's underserved children and youth. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy includes 11th Hour Racing, working to connect sustainability with sport 
to help restore ocean health on the web at 11thHourRacing.org. And that's the California Report for Tuesday, May 9th. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Madi Bolaños. Thanks for listening and have a great day. In regional news, on May 8th, Nevada County's Agriculture Commissioner Chris Denise was appointed to the National Wildlife Services Advisory Committee. The committee that advises Thomas Vilsack, the U.S. Department of Agriculture Secretary, on recommendations for policies and activities for the USDA's Wildlife Services Program. This means rural foothill agricultural producers truly have a voice at the federal level. I look forward to working with the many diverse stakeholders that depend on the Wildlife Services Program and providing meaningful input to help them better accomplish their respective work, Chris commented. As the only person selected from the state of California, this is a huge honor and very humbling. Community Development Agency Director Trisha Tillotson said the following, We're proud of Chris's appointment to this committee and know he'll do a wonderful job representing the needs of rural agriculture on behalf of the state of California. We hope Chris's work will continue to support the wonderful work Nevada County's Agriculture Department is already doing and benefit our county and the state. Committee nominees for the National Wildlife Services Advisory are selected to represent program stakeholders, including academia, airport safety, farming and livestock producers, as well as state wildlife agencies, among other interest groups. Committee members like Chris are appointed for a two-year term and can serve up to three consecutive ones. That's all from Ubinet. A news release from the Nevada County Sheriff's Office reported that a wanted man was taken into custody on multiple felony warrants Saturday morning after evading deputies in two pursuits the week before. Nevada County Sheriff deputies arrested Adam Angelico, age 46, at his Grass Valley home off of Ubet Road at approximately 7 a.m. The arrest was made on three Yuba County warrants. On April 28th, just after 10 a.m., a Nevada County Sheriff's Office patrol deputy attempted to conduct a traffic stop on a 2005 Black Infinity G35 with expired registration on Highway 49 northbound at Labar Meadows Road. The suspect vehicle failed to yield and instead took off at a high rate of speed, exiting the highway onto West Empire Street. During the pursuit, the Infinity crossed over double yellow lines to pass two vehicles and failed to stop at a stop sign. At that point, deputies ended the pursuit in order to ensure community safety. Upon running the suspect vehicle's license plate, deputies discovered the registered owner, Adam Angelico, had active warrants out of Yuba County, with bail amounts totaling $175,000. Approximately 40 minutes later, deputies responded to Angelico's residence to attempt to service the arrest warrants, when they then again witnessed his black Infinity being driven at a high rate of speed eastbound on Ubet Road. The vehicle crossed over the double yellow line and drove into the opposing lane of traffic to pass a vehicle prior to deputies attempting to conduct a traffic enforcement stop. After identifying Angelico as the driver and sole occupant of the vehicle, deputies activated their emergency lights and siren and began the pursuit, during which the Infinity passed three vehicles and a bicycle in the opposing lane of traffic. Ultimately, deputies terminated this pursuit as well, after losing sight of Angelico's vehicle once it turned onto Red Dog Road. On May 4th, Grass Valley police observed the same Infinity traveling southbound on Highway 49. Once again, it was being driven recklessly and passing other vehicles. However, officers did not attempt to pursue it due to heavy traffic and wet road conditions. Because of Angelico's active violent felony warrants and his disregard for the public's safety while driving, deputies formulated a plan to safely take him into custody. On May 6, they responded to his residence to serve the warrants. They located Angelico in bed and placed him under arrest without further incident. 
he was booked into the Wayne Brown Correctional Facility. Turning now to a look at the regional weather forecast from the National Weather Service. In Grass Valley and Nevada City, tonight, mostly clear with a low around 41. Wednesday, sunny with a high near 64. Wednesday night, mostly clear with a low around 42. For Truckee and Lake Tahoe, tonight, a 20% chance of showers and thunderstorms before 8 p.m. Snow level 7,600 feet, lowering to 6,600 feet after midnight. Mostly cloudy, then gradually becoming mostly clear with a low around 28. Wednesday, sunny with a high near 53. Wednesday night, mostly clear with a low around 29. And for Sacramento and the surrounding valley, tonight, mostly clear with a low around 49. Wednesday, sunny with a high near 74. Wednesday night, mostly clear with a low around 49. You're listening to the Evening News on KVMR. During drier seasons that don't bring rainfall, California relies on other sources of water, like reservoirs and melted snowpack. But weather extremes brought on by climate change cause inconsistencies in the availability of those sources. Up next, KVMR's Youth News Corps' Jason Lehman speaks with Carrie Monahan, the current program director of the Sierra Fund, to learn more about our local watershed's history, resiliency, and what a warmer future might entail. Drought and California are two things that have become synonymous with one another, and it seems today you can't have one without the other. From disastrous wildfires to agricultural concerns, the drought seems to be a constant we can't shake. With the climate changing every year, there no longer seems to be a precedent to rely on. So what can be done? To learn more about the history of our local watershed, I contacted Carrie Monahan, the current program director of the Sierra Fund, a place-based organization committed to the land and people of California's watershed. Carrie Monahan received her PhD in forest hydrology from the University of Washington, She is someone I consider to be an expert in watershed health. I asked her, what would you consider to be the most significant issue locally? Understanding the impacts of the California gold rush to both our ecosystems and our communities. And that's an issue that is really significant for this region. That was a huge impact to the Native people that were living here, that are still here, and uh, to our watersheds and how they function forests, the result of the condition that they're in today, the condition of our streams and rivers. So understanding the California gold rush has been a big part of my me learning California ecology because really coming down from Washington, I started to look around and wonder what happened here. It was clear that a lot, if not all, um, of the earth had been turned over and that our forests were uh, second or third growth. And that was all new. And with those fresh eyes, I became even more curious about the big question of of what happened here and how is it still impacting us. So fire is much more naturally frequent in this area. And that means, you know, a return interval that fire should burn over the land in a low intensity way, you know, every three to seven years here. She then goes on to mention natural fire regime and how that's affected the history of our local ecosystem. The forest ecosystem had, in the hundreds of years it had independently existed here, adapted to constant, low-intensity wildfire. These fires were integral to keeping the forests healthy. When California was settled by gold miners seeking their fortune, they began to manage the forests in a way that was unnatural to the ecosystem. Because of fire suppression, the forests began to grow back in a really crowded way. But what about the effects of mining? 
How has that affected industries like agriculture in our area? It really depends on where the agriculture is taking place. And if it's on an old mine site, obviously there could be contamination issues. The use of water for irrigating crops is another interesting thing that was changed a lot with the California gold rush, mainly the conveyance of water. We have our ditches and our canals that we think of as maybe they've always been there. We love walking along them. But they were actually built to get water to the mine sites, and today they're used to convey water to agriculture downstream, let's say, all the way to Marysville sometimes. Uh, So the way that we convey water has changed as a result of of the gold rush. And depending on where the site is, you may have water that is either from underground or surface water, and that the quality of that water may be impacted by where it's come from, which might be impacted by mining. With all these contending factors in mind, I wanted to know, what makes a watershed especially resilient? One of the things that makes our watershed especially resilient is what we call a disturbance regime. So if anybody who's trained for a marathon knows that they need to work out regularly, right, and they're going to be sore afterwards, but that makes them stronger. That's a disturbance regime they're imposing on their bodies. And um, our watersheds are a lot the same way. We have a high-frequency disturbance regime with both fire, rain, and floods. We have a very flashy system. Here, when it rains, it rains hard, and the streams come up, and then they go back down, right? So we have a, a flashy hydrology. But what about climate change? How will this affect us locally? Yeah, absolutely. I think the big thing to remember is we're still learning how it's going to affect us. A lot of the early climate change models, you know, didn't include the Sierra Nevada in the same way that the resolution is able to now. So we're still learning. One of the ways that it's going to affect our region is that there's likely to be more precipitation as rain than as snow. So that means that our snowpack will change. And other features in the watershed that retain water higher longer might become more important, uh, like meadows, like um, groundwater recharge. So um, changing our snowpack. Um, I think we're going to be able to expect more fire as a result of the hot, dry uh, climates that come in the future. And so getting ready to receive that fire on the landscape in healthy ways is really important. So uh, water, fire, uh, we're going to see a change in vegetation. We can see a lot of our pine trees dying because of the stress from drought and and water. Uh, What returns might be more oak-dominated? And this is, uh, you know, forest succession kind of 101. But -hmm. we're going to see a change in the vegetation as we go. So, is our community ready to take on what changes lie ahead? Or must we still grapple with the effects left by our local history? The change in climate has already made itself known. So now is a good time to learn about how these changes will affect you and your community. I'm Jason Lehman with KVMR's Youth News Corps. To learn more about the changing climate, local history, or the Sierra Fund, you can find my extended interview with Carrie Monahan at kvmr.org. The KVMR Youth News Corps is funded by AJA Video Systems, a privately owned global video technology company based in Grass Valley, California since 1993. AJA Video Systems is deeply dedicated to Grass Valley, Nevada City community, recognizing the need for investment in youth and education initiatives. The Idaho-Maryland mine was once the second largest gold mine in the United States. It produced 2.4 million ounces of gold before closing in 1956. 
Today, Canadian mining company Rise Gold Corporation seeks to reopen the mine. On May 10th and 11th, the Nevada County Planning Commission will consider said reopening and also listen to the voices from our community during a public hearing. Resident Jeff Kane had this to say about the highly anticipated event. Maybe you've heard about the Idaho-Maryland mine. It was worked for gold until it shut down in the 1950s. Now a mining company has applied to reopen it. This won't be a prospector panning in the South Yuba, though. We're talking a major industrial operation. The company, Rise Grass Valley, is a branch of a Canadian outfit. You've probably seen its ads in the union, postcards, online. Those ads imagine a high-tech, high-paying, eco-friendly operation that would bring us untold prosperity and contentment. Here's what the mine will actually do. According to the proposal's environmental impact report, it'll tunnel and blast almost a ton of explosives under much of Grass Valley every day. It'll pump over a million gallons of mine water into Wolf Creek every day. It'll run mammoth 20-ton trucks every 10 minutes through Grass Valley 16 hours a day, every day. And that's not all. The mine will plummet property values, decimate our tourism and recreation industries, and shred our community. On May 10th and 11th, the Planning Commission will hear our views on the mine's environmental impact report, decide whether to certify it, and make recommendations to the County Board of Supervisors who will make the final decision. That report is inadequately critical of the proposal and should not be certified. You won't see this issue on a popular ballot. If you don't want the mine, you need to attend this hearing at the Rood Center in Nevada City, May 10th and 11th from 9 to 5. If you do speak there, please say why you oppose certifying the report. If you don't speak, fine, just show up. We expect opposition to be massive, so please carpool when you come with your friends. The views and opinions expressed in the commentary are those of the speaker alone and do not necessarily reflect those of KVMR, its board, staff, management, volunteers, or underwriters. That's our newscast for this Tuesday, May 9th. Head over to our website, kvmr.org, or subscribe to the KVMR News Podcast to hear more. KVMR gets support from listeners like you, and from MEC Builds, Nevada County roofing contractor with over 20 years of experience, providing complete roofing services, gutter products, sun tunnels, and skylights. The showroom is at 316 Colfax Avenue in Grass Valley, mecbuilds.com. And Briar Patch Food Co-op, growing a regenerative food movement one bite at a time, working directly with farmers to ensure a thriving local economy, offering curbside pickup. 290 Sierra College Drive in Grass Valley. Online at briarpatch.coop. Support for KVMR's Future of Radio project comes from AJA Video Systems, empowering the next generation of local journalists and broadcasters. The KVMR Evening News is produced by KVMR News Director Claudia Mendonca. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Julia Jem. Have a great night.